0: This week's episode of Carson Sack Podcast is brought to you by Copenhagen Dips. Copenhagen was born in 1822 and was among the first brands of moist, smokeless tobacco on the market, and today remains the most authentic and best-selling premium product in the category. It's available in original, fine-cut, and long-cut, as well as Copenhagen pouches. Copenhagen is also known for its freshness with a sell-by date stamped on the bottom of every can. Copenhagen is made from 100% American-grown tobacco. Hit (laughs) that-ish. Welcome to the 33rd episode of Carson Sag Podcast, where we talk balls. Now, before I get into the ball talk, I do just want to give you all an update on the status of this podcast. I know it was a while since I put out my last episode that I put out Friday. School was going on. I apologize about that, but I hope you all enjoyed the 32nd episode. This is the 33rd and... Last year after football season, I took a break until the NCAA tournament, and then I took a break all the way until next football season. Is that what I want to do this year, I guess, with the podcast? It's it's not. I'm going to try and still give you a podcast, maybe not weekly. Every two weeks, though, but <clears throat> you got to give me some time to think of what I'm going to talk about Now the football's over. I want to continue to grow the podcast, and I want to keep giving you all better segments, things like that, guests, you just got to give me some time to think about stuff that I'm going to do, that I want to do, and stuff that is realistic for me to be able to do. So with that being said, I want to thank you all for all the support you continue to give me, whether you listen to it whether you just subscribe to it, whether you're just leaving comments and reviews on iTunes, whatever you're doing, just retweeting the tweet that I ask you to do. I greatly appreciate all the support. If you're not doing any of that and this is your first time listening, welcome to Carson Sack where we talk balls. But please, like it, review, subscribe, listen to it most importantly. But again, I'm going to try and give you the best podcast possible and with that being said there might be a couple weeks here coming up that I don't put out an episode but just know when that first episode back when episode 34 drops it is going to hopefully be one of the best if not the best episodes I've ever done because I'm going to put so much thought and effort into stuff to talk about and I know there are other podcasts that just kind of Have sports debates, do um, other things like that. And I'm there, might be things that I do like that, but I'm really going to try and keep it original and not take other people's ideas and styles and things like that. Now, on this episode of Carson Sack Podcast, we are going to talk about the NFL, the Super Bowl, what a majestic game that was, and an elite. I said it, elite performance by Nick Foles. Going to talk about some coaching changes. Is Josh McDaniels going to Indianapolis? Is he staying in New England? He said he was going to the Colts, and now he's back, but could he change his mind? Is this just a game of musical chairs? We are also going to talk a little NBA before the All-Star break. Then we are going to talk about some trade deadline situations in the NBA. There's golf to talk about as well, which we haven't really touched on here recently, but that's my passion. We're going to talk about some golf, going to talk about some NCAA basketball, going to do the sack shaft, who's moving up, who's moving down. And that is going to do it for the sack this episode, but just sit back, relax, and enjoy what is about to come your way. Also, before we get into anything, I apologize. I need to mention one more thing. Shout out to the Delt Dump Sack Pick of the Week. It hit last week, and I just hope and wish the boys well of the Delt Dump Sack Pick of the Week that your success and good fortune and luck just keeps rolling on until you all don't do this anymore. But congratulations on the win last week. Hopefully you all get on a hot streak here coming up. Just congratulations and good luck in your future picks. So let's dive right into the Super Bowl, where the Eagles, underdogs again, but top dogs now, 41 33 over the Patriots. Quick stats for you Nick Foles, 373 yards and three touchdowns. LeGarrett Blunt, gashing his former team on 14 carries, 90 yards, and a touchdown. Your receiving leader for the Eagles, Clement. Of Corey, he had four receptions, 100 yards, and a touchdown. That's 25 yards per catch. Ladies and gentlemen, you're not seeing that that often. On the other side, though, the offense was not lacking. Tom Brady puts up 505 yards and three touchdowns. James White, seven carries, 45 yards on a touchdown. Danny Amendola, eight receptions, 152 yards. Gronk had two touchdowns. The offense was plentiful in this game. The defense lacked a little bit, but of course, in big moments, big plays were made, especially by the Eagles' defense late in the game. Tom Brady, on his game-winning drive, what it thought to be a strip sack, ending the Patriots' hope in this game. Now to dive a little bit deeper into some things that are going on in this game. First off, have to talk about the play call at the end of the second quarter, going into halftime, where the Eagles run the trick play, where it looks to be just an end around. Nope, then it's a reverse. Oh, nope, not just that. It's a pass to Nick Foles in the end zone. One thing that Chris Collinsworth stressed so much and so many people are stressing so much is how much of a ballsy call how gutsy of a call this was was it a big call in a big situation or a big moment yes it was to me though I, yes the play call elevated how good of a play call this was It was a trick play, they weren't expecting it, Nick Foles caught the pass after Brady had just dropped a pass on the previous Patriots possession that would have given them a first down and he had some green in front of him, did Brady, but we know he runs like he's got shit running down his legs, so it would have been hard, but still. What I don't think should be happening is, yes, gutsy play call, but... Collinsworth tried to stress that it was the most gutsy, the biggest play call in Super Bowl history. It's not. If you look at it, the ball was within the 5-yard line of the Patriots. So, if... The play for the Eagles didn't score. The Patriots did not have a ton of time left, and they would have had to drive down the field 95 yards at least to score. And I know Brady is good at that. He's good at quick two-minute drives, but I think there was less than a minute 30 on the clock at this point. And I know Brady still. It's him. He's good at fast-paced drives to get points on the board, but still. I don't think it's this total... Like, oh, it's a no-brainer, you kick the field goal, you take the point situation. If, I mean, it's the last game, it's the Super Bowl, you're obviously going to go out there and try and win it, and if you're going to win it, you're going to have to make gutsy calls like this, but it's not the most gutsiest, ballsiest play call in a Super Bowl. I really think that goes to Sean Payton back in 2007 where he started the second half with an onside kick. You don't see that very often, if ever, honestly, you don't see that. Was it a great call? Yes, it was because Nick Foles turned out he was the one that called it, not Doug Peterson. Peterson let it ride. He trusted Foles enough to execute the play, catch it. I love the moxie that Foles showed to be like, hey, I'm going to ball out. I'm going to call this play. I'm going to catch it. But Chris Collinsworth, you're wrong. Anybody else that is saying this is the most ballsiest, great play call in NFL history, it's not. It's up there. It's definitely top five because of the magnitude of the situation and the play call design, but it's just not one of the best play calls, gutsiest of all time. Another big thing that happened for the Eagles here was two touchdowns that they had were reviewed through the air. They both got confirmed. One was Corey Clement's touchdown catch that he had where it looked as if he did bobble it had one foot down with possession, bobbled it, and then couldn't reestablish that second foot. Looking back on it, I'm really not sure, but I'm going to come back to it just because I want to talk about the second catch. In another situation with Zach Ertz in the red zone, it kind of resembled the play that Jesse James had against the Patriots where he went across the middle, he stretched out, lost possession on the ground because the ball hit the ground, and from my understanding, the ball, the ground can't cause a fumble, but that's my understanding of the rule, but what do I know? Um, Same play pretty much here, and I think the Zach Ertz one is a much easier one to call, where I think, yes, he did not lose possession, but I think he had control of it before, and then once the ball hit, he still had possession, which the play is over, should be. But now with the continuation of the catch, which the NFL has no idea. But I think that call should have stood, and luckily it did. The Corey Clement touchdown, Um, I don't think it was a touchdown, personally. But like I said, the NFL just has no idea what they are really doing with the catch wise and they don't seem to have a solution to it either because the things that they're doing and this goes all the way back to Calvin Johnson I don't even know how long ago but when they played the Bears in Chicago he had a catch that would have won the game for him and it just he didn't bring it all the way to the ground, but it was controversial then. It's still controversial now. I think one of the biggest controversies that there is ever going to be is if Dez caught that ball for the Cowboys against the Packers. I'm in the majority that says, hey, Dez caught it. But the NFL needs to simplify this rule. I don't know how they're going to do it. I don't know if you just leave it as a judgment call. You can't review it. I don't, I don't know. I really don't. That's one thing that the NFL needs to figure out in this offseason, along with a ton of other things. Do I think Roger Goodell is going to grab the bull by the horns here and take advantage of this situation to make a stand and make a good decision for the NFL and for its fans? No. I mean, not at all. He's fucked these type of things up in the past, but that's me being uh, not very hopeful. Maybe, Maybe he'll come out and make a good decision on it, but that's just not very likely. Then we have to now look on the other side of the field and talk about the Patriots. Clearly the favorites coming in. It's Brady, it's Belichick, it's the Super Bowl. They're the favorites. It's, it's obvious they're going to win this. Another thing that has gone noticed, but I think is just wild to me. Tom Brady, 505 yards, three touchdowns. They did not punt the ball once in this game. He threw for the most yards in Super Bowl history. He threw the ball well, dissected the Eagles' defense. The run game was there and complimented it enough. They did not punt, and what happened? They lose the game because of big plays by the Eagles. The Eagles definitely won this game. Patriots didn't blow it. The Eagles went out and won this game. Now, some other notes of late after the game. Matt Patricia, he has gone to the Lions as their head coach. I am happy for him. I hope he does a fantastic there. Fantastic job there. Excuse me. Rob Gronkowski, his future is unknown. A reporter asked him after the game, do you think you're going to come back? Um, Are you mulling retirement? If Gronk retires, I think it's a whole Barry Sanders situation where he retires in his prime, and the question of how great he could have been remains unanswered. And If you are Gronk, I don't think you have anything else to prove. I think you have helped revolutionize the game and the way that tight ends are valued, how they can be used in a system, and how they can affect games. I know you're not the only one. Tony Gonzalez was a big part of that. Jimmy Graham, uh, Gronk, Travis Kelsey, they're all there. Antonio Gates, I think Antonio Gates, and Tony Gonzalez, the OGs really got it going. But then athletes got faster, stronger at the tight end position. Gronk, Kelsey, Jimmy Graham, um, all that stuff like that. I think that is going to be a part of his legacy. Obviously the Super Bowls. Um, the connection he had with Brady so many times. I forget how many touchdowns they've had together in their career, but I know it is one of the leading receiver-quarterback combos that they've had. Is Belichick going to come back? There has been some rumors that he might step down because of the loss of Patricia and the loss of McDaniels, his offensive and defensive coordinator, and then the rift between Kraft and apparently Belichick and Brady and Garoppolo and all that. I don't think Belichick goes anywhere. And then Josh McDaniels, yesterday, announced as head coach of the Colts. Nope. He backs out. Does a little Texas two-step um, uh, sails right across the Delaware back to New England, just like George Washington did with the rest of his Patriots. I don't know why, if you're Josh McDaniels, you don't take that job. Um, He did have a job previously in Denver. His quarterbacks were Kyle Orton, I believe, Jay Cutler, and then Tim Tebow. Tebow had the most success with Josh McDaniels. He's still a young coach, so I still think a head coaching job is going to present to him and have that opportunity later down the line. But you go to Indianapolis. You have Andrew Luck that's going to come back healthy. You get to choose and rebuild that team however you want it. In New England, you're still going through Belichick. You do whatever he wants to do. Brady, you got a question. How long is he going to be there? Maybe McDaniels thinks after Belichick is gone, I'm going to slide in right behind him and keep things going. And if that's the case and he knows that, I totally agree that, hey, stay in New England because you got a good gig now with probably the best quarterback of all time. And then. You get to slide in and pick things up. You know the Belichick way, and you can keep things going for the Patriots. If that is the scenario, I totally 100% agree with McDaniels for going back. It's just a bad look on his part to do that to the Colts. Ultimately, though, this game is about the Eagles, and I want to give a shout-out to Mike D'Alfonso and Mike Bennett, the two, oh, Tyler Borman, and Bro Neal. Those are the four only actual Eagle fans that I know. They stuck with this team through thick and thin. D'Alfonso was an asshole about how good they were all year. And it proved to be that he was correct. They were and are the best team in the NFL. So congratulations to you four. Congratulations to the entire city of Philadelphia. You all needed this. You all deserve this. After how long you have waited for a championship. Happy for you all. Now, what do we get to do with the NFL we get to sit and watch college prospects work out in t-shirts and shorts, uh, measure their hands, measure their wing wing wingspan, measure their height, measure their feet, <clears throat> measure their cocks, I guess. I don't know. Anything else we need to measure, we're going to do. We're going to make them run 40 times over and over again. <clears throat> Um, they're gonna go to the combine, do that over again. We're gonna listen to Mel Kuiper and Don McShay move players around when they actually have no idea what's gonna happen. It's pretty easy to say, hey, the Browns are gonna take a quarterback at number one. Oh, it's gonna be Sam Donald. It's gonna be Josh Rosen, it's gonna be uh Josh Allen. Is it going to be? Who knows? I don't why why do we need to sit around until the draft? I in April or May, I I'm not 100% sure, I apologize about that, but why do we need to sit around for two and three, two to three months to hear these guys talk about the same shit and everything that they don't even know, honestly? The, there are no surefire picks ever in a draft. Oh, getting ESPN updates, what is going on? Um... Uh, Art Rooney says the team will explore new deals for Ben Roethlisberger and Le'Veon Bell. Sign Bell for as much as you want, as much as he wants, because he is the best back in the NFL. Moving back to the draft, do I love the draft? Yes, I do. Do I hate the months leading up to the draft where the draft coverage is just shoved down our throat and these people have really no idea how these players are going to pan out? Like I said, there are no surefire picks in the NFL draft. Yeah, I hate it. I hate it a lot. But that's just what we have to look forward to, I guess, until the draft. So let's prepare ourselves for that. Maybe what I'll do on a podcast in the future, I will do it. I will go through the first round and tell you who I think each team should pick and the upside and downside of that, or if people should trade. I don't know. I'll get crazy with it. But that, that's the end. Right now of the 2017-2018 NFL season, it was fun. We had a lot of laughs. We had a lot of heartbreaks. We had a lot of ups. We had some downs, but most importantly, we had some fun. We had a lot of fun. Here at Carson Sack, it was my pleasure to cover the NFL for you this year, so thank you, and of course, we look forward to kickoff in 2018. Now the NBA is what is the hot sport. It's so in right now. One thing we got to look at, though, is the Cavs. LeBron James says he doesn't. He's not going to waive us no trade clause. Good. Nobody wanted you. The cap space that you bring on, the lack of commitment that you're going to have after this year, duh. No one's going to go after you because you have to give up so much just to get you for five months, and we don't even know if you're going to stay. Two. Awful injuries that just happened one a week ago and one last night. The tearing of ACLs by Boogie Cousins and by Kristaps Porzingis, the Knicks Porzingis. Yeah, that's how you say it. The Knicks were doing a lot better than teams and players and coaches and me personally expected they're playing well. Michael Beasley was good. And they were building a team around Porzingis. And it was working. It really was. It's a big blow to the Knicks' organizations. But if you give him time, you let him rehab, he comes back. He's just as good, if not better, I imagine. So no need to rush that. Take your time because he is the face of your franchise. And honestly, it helps you move up in the lottery and you can get an even better pick now. So just put some positive spin on it for the Knicks fans. Again, last night in the NBA, the Thunder beat Oklahoma City and they blew them out. And then Russell Westbrook had a huge game. Paul George had a good game. The Warriors got called for five technical fouls. Lost by 20 at Oracle. That does not happen. And now the hot issue is, can the Thunder beat the Warriors in a seven-game series? No. No. They can't. I don't think anybody's going to in a seven-game series. But the Thunder do have players that are going to cause problems for the Warriors. Last year, it was all Russell Westbrook. It was going to be, we're not going to let Russ beat us if you're a Golden State fan. We're not going to let Russ beat us, but if anybody else does, it'll only get them maybe a game or two because they're not going to be able to keep it up from the role players. Now you have Westbrook, you have Mellow, and you have Paul George. Mellow, I think, is going to be <clears throat> a very intricate and interesting piece to see how They will use him down the stretch in these next couple months, and especially in the playoffs. You know what you're going to get with Paul George. You know what you're going to get with Westbrook. Melo, a great scorer, inconsistent at times, but when he is hot, he is the hottest in the game. Eh, Maybe Curry's a little hotter than that. But heat check-wise, and if Melo is on, I am all in on Carmelo Anthony. So it's just going to be interesting to see what they can do with him, but... I'm I'm hopeful that if there ever came to a point where the Thunder did face the Warriors in a seven-game series, that Thunder could perform and prove a lot of people wrong and hopefully win it, but at the end of the day, I just don't see the Warriors losing four games to anybody. So, to wrap up this NBA talk, the Cavs are the talk of the league right now just because of how much chaos is going on in Cleveland, Brian Windhorst, I don't know how he has a job, but Windhorst thinks the Cavs need to trade three or four players before Thursday, or LeBron is just out of town, what really upsets me is the relationship between Dan Gilbert, the Cavs owner, and LeBron James, no, it might not be the greatest, but that in no way is affecting how LeBron and the team should be playing on the court. Anything that LeBron has asked for, Gilbert has done. He traded for Kevin Love. This offseason, he signed Dwayne Wade. He brought in J.R. Smith as a second scorer for LeBron. He brought in Amon Shumpert as a great defensive guy for LeBron. He brought, like I said, Dwayne Wade this summer. He made what still can be salvaged as a good situation right now out of a bad situation, had to trade Kyrie because that whole dynamic was not going to work at all. So what's he do? He gets Isaiah Thomas, who is a good player, and then he gets Jay Crowder, who is a good, I think, step up from um, Shumpert at defense, so he gets a better defensive player for him. He goes out, he gets Jose Calderon, he gets Derrick Rose to back up the point guard position. I mean, Gilbert is doing a lot for LeBron, and that's just what bothers me is people blame that whole tension on the problems, and yeah, could it cause problems, but it's not as big as an issue, and I don't think LeBron gives enough credit to Gilbert, and I don't think Gilbert is still totally over LeBron leaving like he did when it did happen and went to Miami. I just don't think that relationship is peachy. Could it be fixed? Yeah, if he wins another championship, everybody will be happy. But right now, I just don't agree and like how people are blaming that dynamic onto the court and why the Cavs' performances are just lacking. Now, in closing, just to talk about some of the NBA situations, Ever since Blake Griffin came to town for the Pistons, they are undefeated, 5-0. So remember when people said, oh, no, the Clippers got the better of that deal? Yeah, probably. I said they didn't. I said the Pistons got the better of the deal, so I'll just take credit for being right. Then, Washington Wizards. John Wall has been out for them. And then, what do they do? They win five games in a row. So there's a lot of issues with controversy In the Washington Wizards locker room, reportedly, they're not a big fan, the players are, of John Wall. I honestly don't know why you wouldn't be, but what is expected and kind of talked about is he's not one to take blame, he's one to just give blame off on people, which, if you're going to be a leader of a team, you can't do that, and right now, and in the past couple seasons, he is a leader of that team, so... And he's been in the league for a while, so you would think he's, I guess, matured enough to where he would know that, but I guess he hasn't. An interesting thing is if you do trade John Wall, you get a lot back, I feel like. Who would you want? I honestly think if you're the Cavs, pull the trigger. Trade Isaiah and somebody for John Wall. Do it blockbuster if it happens and I think it helps that team tremendously granted John Wall is not a great defensive player but his offensive skill set is amazing he could be the fastest player in the NBA with the ball in his hands and I understand I keep bringing things back to the Cavs and I really hate that I'm doing that there are 29 other teams in the NBA so I apologize about that finally to wrap up NBA talk I can't believe I'm about to do this but want to give I guess a shout out to two former U players Terry Rozier and then Donovan Mitchell Donovan Mitchell of course all year been killing it he just recently if I believe had a 40 yeah 40 points second time this year he is only the fourth rookie with multiple 40point games over the past 35 seasons want to take a gander a guess of who that would be. It's Michael Jordan, Allen Iverson, and Blake Griffin. Pretty good company. And then Terry Rozier for the Celtics, stepping in for the injured Kyrie Irvin. Rozier became the first player since starts were first tracked in the 70s to record a triple-double and a 30-point game in his first two career starts. If they can, the Celtics can somehow manage a good rotation between Rozier and Kyrie, maybe play them at the same time, the Celtics are going to be so hard to beat come the playoffs. And then Gordon Hayward could be coming back for him too. I don't know. If they figure out their big man play, Al Horford has been playing well. Marquise Morris has been playing well. It's just hard. But the reason I got on this tangent is because, shout out, like I said, I can't believe I'm doing this, to two former L players, Terry Rozier and Donovan Mitchell. Moving on, as I mentioned in the opening, golf season is in full effect right now. Granted, it is early on, but the Masters is approaching. It'll be here before you know it. I'm about to play the Masters theme music, but I'm going to play this before every time I talk about golf because it's one of the most synonymous openings for any sporting event but just because I'm playing the master one doesn't mean that I am talking about the masters just want to clear that up I'm actually this week going to be talking about the waste management open that was last week and then we're going to talk about the Pebble Beach Pro and that's going to take place this coming week so let's talk about those tiny white balls here on Carson Sack Podcast Okay, so there we go. First, on the Waste Management Phoenix Open, you have to talk about the 16th hole, the par three, one of the rowdiest sports environments there ever will be. Oh, God, I whew, gets my blood going right now. I wish I could. I will make it there one day. I promise you that. But in a playoff, one-hole playoff, Gary Woodland outduels Chez Reeve for the victory, Woodland of Masters fame when he won it a few years ago, actually a long time ago, early two thousands, actually. But comes out of this, and he in a post uh, round press conference said, "This is like the fifth major to him." So, if it honestly is of that much importance to him, good for him. I'm glad he got that. Um, earlier on in the week, Ricky Fowler and John Rom, they were up near the top. So. Fowler and Ron both finish at 12-under, tied for 11th. Justin Thomas started his fourth round hot. First six holes, six birdies, but he falls back to 11-under, so he finishes tied 17th. You like to see big names on the top of the leaderboard and familiar names, honestly. Ches Reavy, familiar. Uh, Gary Woodland, familiar. Matt Kuchar was fifth. Um, Bryson DeChambeau, the one guy who wears the funny little hats and then has all of his irons the same club length. He's a familiar name. Then Daniel Berger, he has been very consistent for about three years now. Ricky Fowler, John Rahm, Justin Thomas, Patrick Reed was near there, Bo Hostler just guys that, as a golf fan, I like to see up there because they're consistent, they're well-known golfers, and you can't everybody's some people are like oh I love a uh, long shot I love the underdog in golf really really do you because in masters in majors US Opens and the British Open the P.J. Championship and big tournaments like that you can consistently see ratings they are better when big names are out there not long shots so just saying that now Moving on to this week, we have the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am, where defending champion Jordan Spieth is going to try and retain. Pebble Beach, the notorious Pebble Beach, one of the most worldwide renowned golf courses in the world, is really going to favor the long ball hitters off of the tee. Dustin Johnson, Roy McIlroy, Justin Thomas, Jordan Spieth as well. Guys like that, J.B. Holmes, other people like that, that can really just crush the ball off of the tee. So those guys, obviously, going to have some advantage on this course. Another person that I think is going to have an advantage here, Graham McDowell, has not really been relevant after he won the U.S. Open here, but like I said, won the U.S. Open here, so he knows how to play this course. Knows how to win on this course. So just keep an eye out for him. The person I think that is actually going to win this is Willie McGirt. I, I don't know why. I really don't. But he's 38 years old from North Carolina. He's played well here recently. Let me pull up some stats for you. Here we go. He's played in five tournaments in 2018. He's made the cut four times. He did miss the cut last week at the Wasteman Shit, but he's got two top tens on the year, so almost half of the time when he plays, he is making the top ten, which gives him a great advantage because he's around the top of the leaderboard. Granted, he hasn't gotten it done just yet in 2018, but He's there. He's very consistent. Only one miscut. What you're hoping here for myself is that this last miscut that he had last week doesn't carry over into this week. But right there, I gave you a big list of names of guys that, obviously, they're favorites because they're some of the most well-known. But William McGirt, you gotta, in my opinion, you need to look out for him. Bubba Watson is also in the field. He's another guy long off the tee, but his game has just not been very consistent here as of late. I mean, 2016, he didn't even make the Ryder Cup team, and he hasn't won since. So he, it favors this course does him just because he's a long ball hitter, but I don't think the rest of his game is consistent enough right now for him to win this tournament. But you never know. If it's not William McGirt, though, it's got to be Phil Mickelson. It's just got to be. This is pretty much one of his home courses. He always plays well here. He won it a couple years ago. Um, It wasn't the AT&T Pro-Am. It was another tournament, but it was held at Pebble Beach, and he ended up winning it. So I'm going McGirt or Phil Mickelson to win this week at the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am. We are very close to wrapping up this edition of Carson Sack Podcast. But first, though, we need to talk about the sack shaft. Talk about college basketball teams that are moving up and moving down the shaft. First team that is moving down the shaft is Kentucky. They lose last night by two points to Tennessee at Rupp Arena. Shouldn't have happened. This team is right now in, in trouble. Not They're not dead yet. They're wounded. They're wounded pretty bad right now, but they're not dead. They showed against Vanderbilt, and they showed against West Virginia on the road. They can win tough, close games, and they have the talent to win hard-fought games as well. But luckily, there are a few big games left on the schedule. But boy, did they really need that win last night against Tennessee. Another team down on the slide is Wichita State. They were down there last week, and they just not rebounded at all. Tennessee, the team that beat Kentucky last night, they are moving up the shaft because that is a big win for them, especially on the road. First team to sweep Kentucky in the SEC, I believe. I think that's the first time they've done it since 2000, so that's a ridiculous stat. Another team moving up the shaft is the Xavier Musketeers. They just beat Butler last night in a close game. That takes the Musketeers to 21 and 3 on the year. Auburn sitting at 21 and 2. I think they're not getting enough respect, but I also don't think they've played enough tough opponents. They are moving up the shaft right now, but They do have to play Texas A&M tonight with a loss there. It is at Auburn. They could be sliding down the shaft as well. Duke, they slid down the rankings, but I am going to take them to slide up the shaft just because they have very important games coming up this week. They have to play at UNC and then... Coming up in 10 more days, they have to go to Clemson. If they win both of those and then take care of business against Georgia Tech and Virginia Tech that they have between those two games, I like where Duke is going to be headed. Another team rapidly moving up the shaft and the rankings but not getting a ton of buzz is Rhode Island, 14th in the country. They've won 14 games in a row. Nope sorry about that, Rhode Island is 18th in the country, won 14 games in a row, they're not getting a lot of talk, they don't play in that tough of a conference, they just barely beat Massachusetts, and Massachusetts is ass, they are terrible, but in their bigger games this year, if you want to call them big, they beat St. Louis by 8 points, They beat Dayton on the road by 14. They just beat VCU at VCU by 13 points. VCU is a tough game no matter who you are. It really is. So they're moving on. They do have... Two very versatile scores, in a player that called Matthews and then the other player, Terrell. I don't know their first names. I apologize about that. But they are very versatile scorers, can score in a multitude of ways, and they help lead them over VCU um, in that tough game that they made look pretty easy, honestly. Folks, that does it for episode 33 of Carson Sack podcast. Like I have mentioned to you all at the start of this episode, I don't know the next time that you are going to hear from me. I hope you all are looking forward to that. I am already. Just know, as I said, that podcast, episode 34, I'm going to try and make one of the best because I'm going to be thinking up of new interviews, new um, segments, new everything, just because... Football season has ended. Last year, this podcast took a break, but this year, I'm going to try and not do that. Again, like, rate, subscribe, review everything on iTunes. Share this with as many people as you want or can. Most importantly, though, listen to it. Enjoy it. And if you don't, tell me that you don't. Tell me why you don't like it. I'm here. I'm ready to listen. I will I will make changes if they are presented, and I agree with them, and they are not very critical. I don't take um, harsh criticism very well, constructive criticism, I'm I'm open to hear, but thank you for all the continued support of this. I just made a t-shirt for this podcast, I'm going to wear it, ask me if you can... I don't know, wear it around, I don't know. There was $35 to make. I was going to get some and try and just give them to my friends, but literally $35, can you believe that shit? I'm not expecting you to buy any, but I am expecting you to listen and to enjoy this edition of Carson Sack Podcast where we talk balls, and as always, as we end it, we will be seeing you.